Hello all, and welcome to Current Account with Clay Lowry. Clay Lowry serves as the Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. The purpose of this podcast is to bring to your attention current issues in international finance and economics, as well as provide a U.S. policy and politics angle on these different issues. Clay, over to you. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Current Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry. For today's episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Jean Ma, who's the head of China Research here at the Institute of International Finance. I've asked Jean to join me today to give some background on what is happening in China regarding COVID-19 lockdowns and how these lockdowns, as well as other factors, are negatively impacting China's growth. Though China has seen a multitude of COVID-19 lockdowns over the last couple of years, the current lockdown in Shanghai, which started in late March, is significant for a few reasons. First, this outbreak is the worst China has probably seen since the Wuhan outbreak at the start of the pandemic back in early 2020, with reports of thousands of cases a day. Second, Shanghai is home to around 25 million people, three times the size of the population of New York City. The fact that millions of people have not been allowed to leave their homes for almost a month, combined with shortages of food and other essential goods, has left this major city in a state of desperation and discontent. And Shanghai is also known to the world as the world's biggest port. It has the third busiest cargo airport, and the Shanghai Stock Exchange is the world's third largest stock exchange by market capitalization. So given Shanghai's role as a global trade center, this lockdown is clearly going to negatively impact China's economy and is likely going to affect global supply chains in some respects that other lockdowns in China have not done. So, Gene, I wanted to ask you about this. Shanghai is not the only place for lockdowns in China, but it's the biggest city. Can you walk us through what's happening in some of these cities, Shanghai in particular, and then how is this affecting economic growth? Thank you, Clay. You are exactly right. Before Shanghai, there are many lockdowns in other cities. For example, a northeastern city called Jilin was in lockdown for over a month. The size of that province in terms of uh, economic output is about one-third of Shanghai, but that didn't get mentioned. But Shanghai caught a lot of attention because it's an international city. So the outbreak started about early March, from, say, a few dozen people a day to a few hundreds now to about 20,000 people a day. This is due to both infection and also screening. Then 70% of people of the cases detected, in fact, are asymptomatic. Death is only about a few dozen so far. So that means the infection rate in Shanghai is about 1% of a population. The death rate, in fact, is just one out of every 10,000 people. So the number is not that scary, but however, the measure that's adopted for the lockdown is quite extreme. It's a very large city of about 23 to 25 million people uh, has been in lockdown for over a month now. And most people are not allowed to leave their homes. My brother's family, which uh, happened to be in a more relatively less infected, so more lenient uh, neighborhood, they were allowed uh, to stay outdoors three hours a day. And they were given a ticket to visit a grocery store every few days. The whole city, the whole gigantic city, is uh, still very much uh, a ghost town with all the streets empty. Over a month in lockdown, with one of the biggest cities in the world and one of the most important cities in the world economically, 
What is this doing to China's economic growth? I know, for instance, that the IMF has downgraded how China will grow this year, but maybe you can kind of explain it in a little more detail to our audience. Yeah, the impact is enormous.、Uh, we can get a sense from some high-frequency data. So, for example, the trucking volume is down about a ninety percent in Shanghai and thirty percent nationwide compared to the pre-lockdown level in early March. Consumption sales is down about fifty percent in Shanghai and thirty percent nationwide. And remember, these are the data people get in early April. The situation is a lot worse now. As you mentioned, Shanghai is world's largest port. The through port of Shanghai and Ningbo Port, which is a port、um, in the next province, combined is about four times of Los Angeles and Long Beach. And moreover, the Yangtze River Delta supplies more. Intermediate goods, capital goods, than the Per River Delta, which mainly produce consumer goods. So that means the shock、uh, to the supply chain this time is much greater than in the previous lockdowns. All right. So, what do you forecast for economic growth this year? Or just tell us kind of what you've seen.、Um, you know, we're used to hearing about China having six, seven percent economic growth year in, year out. What is it looking like for this calendar year? Yeah, the GDP growth published、uh, for the first quarter was about 4.8, but that got a lot of help from a pretty robust number back in January, February.、Uh, the March number deteriorated significantly, as we expected. It will be the same thing for April. For example, retail sales increased 6.7 year over year in January, February, but it decreased by 3.5 in March. As we mentioned, with a much weaker consumption, the number will be a lot more. Uglier in April, so the whole year growth is still very difficult to forecast right now because the situation is still very fluid. Earlier this year, Beijing put out a very ambitious growth target of 5.5. However, the lockdown and also the war in Ukraine cast a very dark shadow over the economy. So, if we continue to see lockdown rolling over the country, then the economy will be brought to the edge of a recession. So, if Beijing can be more pragmatic and manage the COVID like、uh, Hong Kong or Singapore, that economy can maybe able to still grow around four percent for the year, but it's still way below the four and a half growth target. There's two questions that come out of that for me. The first one: four point eight percent economic growth. So, in the United States or in Europe or some other countries, if someone said you're going to get a four point eight percent economic growth, the politicians would break into verse of "Happy days are here again." So, obviously, that is not the case here in China, because、uh, just the way you just explained it. For those of our listeners who don't follow China economic issues too much, why is four point eight percent economic growth not such a good thing? I guess. Well, for such a large emerging economy with a lot of surplus labor, you need higher growth to create jobs. But the, the other way is that the potential growth rate is a bit higher than a matured economy. Even with a 4.8 growth back in the first quarter, okay, which is not too bad, unemployment rate has already moved up to 5.8, which is much higher than the unemployment rate、uh, in the U.S., which is 3.6. Just like a bicycle, you need to maintain certain speed、uh, to avoid the bicycle to fall down.、Uh, so that's why Beijing always put out pretty、uh, ambitious growth target. So let me talk about something that we do a lot of work here at the Institute of International Finance, and that's about capital flows. Whenever we kind of write about capital flows, emerging market capital flows can be pretty volatile, but it's still a very important factor for us to look at. 
The one country where that really has never seemed to be the case is China. Capital flows, they seem to flow into China in a pretty regular way. But lately, they've taken a negative downturn. Is this due to the factors that we've been talking about? And should we also be talking about what's been happening in Russia, Ukraine, and what its potential impact on China might be? Back in 2020 and 2021, China attracted a 200 billion inflow in 2020 and uh, 178 billion inflow in 2021. However, in February and March, we saw 37 billion outflow just in two months. That is the largest ever two-month capital outflow from China on record. I think there are many factors behind these outflows. China's economy has been slowing down ever since the second half of last year. The local equity market is not performing very well. COVID lockdown brought on some additional uncertainty. And as you mentioned, the war Ukraine raised a geopolitical concern over China. And the rising energy commodity prices also negative for China's manufacturing sector. And moreover, better tightening while the PBOC is easing its policy. So the U.S. 10-year yield rose above the Chinese 10-year yield just recently for the first time in over a decade. Last year, we saw 178 billion inflow, but we expect a much smaller inflow this year, probably below $50 billion in 2022. I told you I had two questions that your earlier answer had risen for me, and I gave you one. Let me give you my second. I wanted to flesh out the capital flows argument because I think it probably goes to this, which is you started kind of hinting at policy issues. So how do you think China's going to address this? So it's got a slowdown in economic growth. It has some capital outflows. As you said, some of them are almost unprecedented. I know you wrote earlier this year about your analysis that China was starting to make a change in its kind of posture in terms of instead of focusing as much on financial stability, it would be focusing more on stimulus for their economy. So how is that playing out? What do you think the policymakers in China are really thinking about right now? Right. The policymakers in Beijing, they were in a like deleveraging mode uh, for a few years um, before the COVID. Of course, they would provide stimulus during the Wuhan COVID, but they stopped stimulus very soon. Late 2020, early 2021, they tightened the policy, then switched gear again, the second half, the last gear. So for example, PBOC turned dovish late last year by cutting 50 basis points of a required reserve ratio. It followed up with another 10 basis point cut of interest rate early this year in January. Then another 25 basis point cut of the triple R, the required reserve ratio, just this month. They also eased the credit policies through the macroprudential measures and also window guidance. On the fiscal side, uh, in fact, Beijing still has a pretty ample dry powder this year. So the planned uh, fiscal deficit on cash basis this year can be as high as 8.1 percentage point of GDP, which is much greater than the actual deficit of 5.3% last year. So the difference, the higher fiscal deficit means much more fiscal stimulus that can be available this year. But however, the policy easing are the necessary condition, but not a sufficient condition to support a robust economy. Let me explain why. For example, if the confidence of local government remain very poor, the available fiscal resource will not be used. If the real estate developers and home buyers remain very bearish, they will not borrow money from banks, despite more loans being made available 
with the lower triple R ratios about the PBOC, without fiscal stimulus, especially through spending. Easing monetary policy right now is like pushing on a string. I think it's time for Beijing to seriously consider more fiscal spending, especially giving money directly to the household in the form of like consumption voucher or transfer payment, like we saw in Hong Kong and the U.S. You just asked some very good questions on China. So I want to take this chance to ask you some questions. You have been working uh, in government sectors. So what do you think uh, what the Biden administration will do in terms of the U.S.-China relationship going forward, especially uh, in the trade and investment front? Thanks, Gene. And it's an important question. So let's first back up half a step and just say, all right, so during the Trump administration, President Trump and his administration focused a lot on the trade relationship with China and basically decided it was a bad relationship. And so in order to affect that, they had put on a variety of tariffs. China had counter-retaliated with other tariffs. In addition, they took steps to start changing how investment flowed back and forth with China. And some folks within the Trump administration, although it wasn't fully a policy, uh, even talked about financially decoupling from China. This argument and tension ratcheted up and down a little bit and ended up with an agreement right before COVID broke out on trade. The Biden administration, now a little less than a year and a half in, in some respects is not a very dissimilar policy to the Trump administration. In fact, I would call it the Trump administration policy with a smile instead of a snarl. They have not changed the tariff policy. They have actually talked about even raising tariffs in a different way. They have tried to implement more and tougher on the investment side and on, on technology issues. And they're even having a conversation right now with Congress on a kind of a strange provision to basically prohibit or at least mitigate outward bound investment to China. Probably the biggest change is that they have tried, the Biden administration that is, has tried to make this more of a multilateral approach toward China than the Trump administration had done. But overall, it doesn't strike me as a huge change in their relationship, which is not very good between the two countries. One final point to your question is whether or not has Russia-Ukraine situation taken the focus away from China or has it put it back on China in a different light, which is that China has been sort of neutral and even semi-leaning towards Russia during this conflict which, of course, is not where the Biden administration would like it to be. Gene, thank you very much. Let me do a three, two, one. My three takeaways from what Gene has been telling us, due to the COVID-19 lockdowns, as well as other factors, China's economy has begun to slow to the point that China's forecast of 5.5% economic growth is most likely not to be met this year. And in fact, the IMF, and my guess pretty soon here at the IIF, we'll be probably lowering our forecasts for China. Second, in addition to lower GDP growth, we've seen an outflow in capital in China that has been highly unusual. And even during periods of a major emerging markets outflows, China has always been unaffected, and this is no longer the case. And third, it's even possible that China is moving toward a recessionary environment. 
not in the classical way we think of it here in the United States or in Europe with negative growth, but a major significant slowdown in, in its economic growth. And this is likely to accelerate China's move towards stronger stimulus policies to try to avoid such a scenario. The two things I'm looking out for, will the outflow and capital flows in China reverse itself or will this trend continue? And second, will the Biden administration be able to refocus on China? The U.S. relationship with China has been a major point of discussion here in the United States for a number of years, but Russia's invasion of Ukraine has seemed to take attention away from this issue. Finally, my sports topic this week takes us to Japan. A 20-year-old pitcher named Roki Sasaki, who pitches for Japan's Chiba Lati Marines, pitched almost two perfect games in a row. First, let me explain something. In baseball, what is a perfect game? It means that the pitcher and their teammates prevent anyone from reaching a base by hit, by walk, by air, or any other means you can think of. In the roughly 125 years in U.S. Major League Baseball history, there have been 23 of these perfect games. In the roughly 80 years of the Nippon Professional Baseball League, there have been 16 of them. In fact, the last one in Japan was 28 years ago. I used the word almost when I was talking about what Sakaki did. Because he pitched one perfect game, and then in the next game, he pitched eight of nine innings in a perfect way. And the only reason he didn't finish is his manager pulled him out. Frankly, this was considered next to impossible what he did. Let me give you an example. One of the legendary moments in U.S. baseball history was when second-year pitcher Johnny Vandermeer pitched two no-hitters back-to-back in the United States. A no-hitter is extremely difficult, but is a much more common occurrence than a perfect game. In fact, what Johnny Vandermeer did has never been matched. By the way, it happened in 1938. Sasaki is also a second-year pitcher, just like Vandermeer. He's only 20 years old. In his first game, he struck out 19 batters. That's another record in Japan. And in his second perfect game, he struck out another 14 batters. Frankly, I just want to see if he can do it again. It's amazing. That's all for today's episodes. I want to thank Gene Ma again for his insights and providing his expertise on China's economy and the forecast we're seeing for China's economic growth. It's a really pleasure to join this podcast and also learn a lot about baseball. Please join me next week for another episode of Current Account with Clay Lowry. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Current Account with Clay Lowry. We'd love to hear from you, so please feel free to provide us any feedback or ideas about the show as we're always looking to improve and make these episodes fun and relevant for the audience. You can provide feedback at podcast at IIF.com. Please make sure to tune in next Monday for our next episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Thanks for listening.